It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia and my co-host Shannon Bond is not with us this week because she has just given birth to a lovely baby boy named Merritt Bond Walker. Shannon, congratulations. Amy and I already miss you, uh, but we can't wait to meet the little guy. So filling in for Shannon this week is Matt Klein, my colleague on Alphaville. Matt, how are you? Good. How are you? Uh, how good a name is Merritt Bond Walker, by the way? It's pretty. It sounds like, you know, classic Western, you know, hero you're, you're riding, a, of, riding a horse. You're that, thinking of Walker, Texas Ranger. I'm thinking something. Well, that could that could be it, too. I was thinking maybe a little older, you know. That, right. But Merritt Bond Walker, podcast Avenger. I don't I don't know what he would be avenging exactly, but you know, I just think it's a great some name. some great injustice. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh anyways, uh congrats again, Shannon. We're all really, really thrilled for you. Matt, before we start today's show, uh, a bit of housekeeping, because you and I are gonna be participating uh in an awesome event for the third straight year called Camp Alphaville. It's pretty fantastic. We're gonna be going to London for July first. That's a Friday. We're going to be doing an all-day event. Conference isn't really the right word. It's an event. Yeah, don't festival. call it a conference. It's been rebranded the Festival of Finance by the FT. It is a festival-like It event. will be festive. Yes, it's all day long. We've got some pretty heavy hitters uh, in this lineup, Matt. All right, We've got Andy Haldane and Peter Pratt, the respective chief economists of the BOE and the ECB. All right, On my panel on peak globalization, we've got Tina Fordham, who's been here on the show, We've got Diane Coyle. I think you've got, uh, on your panel, you've got like who, Charles Goodhart. Who else? Charles Goodhart. We've got Hyunsung Shin, who's the head of research at the BIS. We've got Elan Ray, who's a professor who's notable for saying that having your own currency doesn't actually give you monetary sovereignty uh, in the absence of capital controls. Uh, we've got George Magnus. We've got uh, Karthus and Karn. We've got, you know, there are a whole lot of really great people coming to this event. And, you know, if this stuff is interesting to you, we've got stuff on tax evasion and the music business and India and China and Japan and all sorts of other topics. This is just a fraction of what's available. We should also explain that, by the way, this is an event that takes place outdoors. All right. There's craft beer being sold as everything's going on. There's multiple events happening at once. So if you don't like what you're looking at, you can go to something else. It's not like a boring finance conference where you only have one option. And if that sucks, you have to wait for the next thing to start. It's just a different kind of event. It's unique, I think. Um, so definitely check it out. Camp Alphaville, July 1st in London. Okay. And even if you can't make, to, make it to London, we will later on be uh, you know, releasing some podcasts and videos from the event. But there's really nothing like attending it live. So if you can get there, go to FT Alphaville. That's at ft.com forward slash Alphaville. And then in the top right-hand corner, click on the registration panel and go buy your tickets. So much for the flogging of Camp Alphaville. Let's get on to this episode's agenda. First up, Matt and I are going to talk about his recent exploration of the world of private equity and do they always value their investments accurately? 
And what does it even mean for a private equity firm to value something accurately? It's kind of interesting philosophical complications. Second, after that, I speak with anthropologist Tassie Hirschfeld about gangster states and the behavioral economics and the ideas from behavioral ecology, yes, and from evolutionary biology that explain political economy and specifically the criminal underworld that often goes unexplored by conventional economics. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. Okay, and first up on the show, uh, Matt is here with me in the studio, Matt Klein, and we're going to talk about his recent piece on, quote, private equities mark to make believe problem. All right, Matt, I, I love the philosophical way in which you start this. Here's your first line. Finance is the wrong business for people committed to the idea of objective truth, end quote. What do you mean by that? So basically, everything we talk about has value, right? And there's this idea of fundamental value or inherent value, and there's just no reason to think that that's true. The best you can say is that you have an asset that produces some kind of income you think. And then the question is, what kind of multiple do you want to put on that income. So if you own a bond that's promising to pay you $4 a year forever or perpetual, you say, well, maybe I think uh, I'm going to discount that at 4% a year. So it's worth $100. Maybe I discounted at a different rate and it's worth something else. And these are, you can have a relatively small change in the discount rate, a relatively small change in the forecast you make. Uh, and the value can change radically. And most assets aren't nearly as simple to model as a, you know, a perpetual bond, like I just said in the example. So I think when people talk about fundamental value or inherent value, you really have to be saying, well, no, that's not really what it is. Well, the best we can do is, you know, Keynes has this example of the beauty contest. He says, what the, you know, if you're trying to pick stocks, it's like trying to predict the winner of a beauty contest, not based on who's the most beautiful contestant, but based on what you think everyone else is going to say. So in other words, my, my formulation maybe you know, I may put those specific words there, but it's a, it's a very old idea that, you know, that it's really about how people as a whole value uh, an asset and that these valuations can change pretty right. quickly. And to be, I guess, even more specific, an asset should be valued by the present value of its expected income stream. The problem is that the expectation of the income stream is itself a subjective idea. That's right. Right. It's the future. You don't know the future. It's the future. You don't know the future. Uh, this is uh, especially problematic with the performance of companies, right, which could change. Right. So you mentioned the performance of a specific bond, right? But when it comes to equities, which are tied to the income stream of a company right. uh, and how it's going to perform, that it gets really hard. And so you end up with what we know of as the market. But I love this idea partly because finance is dominated by numbers, obviously. And these numbers can often give you the comfort of um, something precise. Uh, and yet often those numbers themselves are very illusory uh, and in that regard, uh, deceptive in a way. It's sort of fundamentally right. a deceptive idea so, that you know what something is worth at any given time. The false sense, right. It's a false sense of precision. You can you can plug in some very, you know, m several significant figures for what exactly you think the discount rate is and the growth rate is and all these things, but you just tweak those by a little bit. It's pretty, individually those tweaks can seem reasonable and then you end up with a radically different answer. Right. And that's just the nature, you know, that's why markets exist. Okay. So now let's tie these ideas to uh, your investigation of uh, private equity and how it values uh, the companies that it, that, you know, a private equity firm buys. Okay. First, let's start by defining exactly what private equity does. 
So private equity is now a much broader category than it used to be, where you know it's anything that isn't you know buying a share of a company that's traded on exchange. What I'm looking at here uh, is more of a traditional definition of it, what, where leverage buyouts essentially, where you take a company that was a public company, you then buy it. It's now long, no longer a public company. You add debt, and then you you know hope to make money on the difference. Maybe you make some operational improvements, sell it later. Okay, let's be as clear as possible. A private equity firm oversees its private equity funds and raises money from investors. The managers at the private equity firm that run the individual funds are known as the general partners. The investors in the funds are known as limited partners. Right. Those investors are often pension funds. Those investors are sometimes uh, high net worth individuals. University endowments. University endowments, other big institutional investors. They give the fund money and they are known as the limited partners, right. right? The private equity fund then goes out in search of private assets. It could be a private company. It could be a project of some kind. Yep. And then it buys those assets using the money it raised. And then it adds debt, sometimes by having the very company that it's buying issue bonds, high yield bonds or right. other kinds of bonds. That's partly how it funds the purchase, but it's also how it gets bigger returns because it is levered up. The investment is levered up. That's what a private equity fund essentially does, right? Okay. Your investigation looked at how the investments of private equity funds compare against similar companies in the public markets, right? That sometimes perform better or worse than uh, the private equity funds investment, right? Right. Take us through what you found because this is fascinating. So, Essentially, this this is based on, on a research note that that was passed along to me by a guy named Dan Rasmussen at Verdad Advisors, and he was looking at uh, a very specific subset of the energy sector, where you'd think obviously there's a lot of different kinds of companies you can invest in, a lot of kinds of investments you can make in energy, whether it's a pipeline or an explorer or a services company, whatever. But overall, these companies tend to be relatively exposed to oil price. So you'd think that, given what we've seen happen in the oil price since the summer of 2014, that you know, there'd be some flow through. And in fact, if you look at public energy companies, all these different types, they all generally, you know, they're different degrees, but you know, they they've all lost a lot of money. They've all lost a lot of value since summer twenty fourteen, as you'd expect. So what he did was he said, okay, well let's look at the universe that we can find of private equity funds that focus on energy companies. Basically funds that were raised in uh twenty ten through twenty thirteen. So basically they're buying during while the market was going up, how they've done since then. And uh, what he found was an interesting disconnect between companies where they did a lot of buying in, say, 20 – or they, they, excuse me, the funds were raised in, say, 2011, 2012. So you assume that they're actually still in the midst of buying assets because the normal – traditionally, the way these funds work is you, you get the capital committed at the beginning from the limited partners. You then hopefully spend it all in the first few years and then you spend the next – you know, the remainder of the period, which is traditionally you think it all adds up to about 10 years, but it could be a little longer. But you spend that period essentially reaping uh, what you sowed and, and collecting dividends and selling the assets. So in the first five years of a private equity fund's life, after it's finished raising the money, it mm-hmm. starts spending the money. That's it right. looks for companies and assets to buy, yes. right? Then it might make changes in those companies' management, whatever it needs to do to try to get those companies to perform better. And then in the last five years of a private equity fund's life, it will start selling off its assets or extracting dividends from those companies to give back to the investors, right? So it makes it really hard because these are private companies that it's bought 
So they're not publicly traded. Obviously, by definition, they're not publicly right. traded. Uh, and so they have to figure out what they're worth some other way. Right. And this is what you mean when you talk about fair value That's accounting. Right. Okay. So basically, the, the way the accounting rules are stated, and this is a sort of a common, you know, it sounds like it should be common sense, is if there is some kind of publicly traded equivalent you can look at, then you try to extract the information you can from that to value your own. So for example, if you own a retailer and you can look at all the publicly traded retailers and you can look at their financial metrics and say, okay, well, what seems to be the valuations and the different kind of multiples you look at, but you can look at what those markets telling you. You can plug in your own numbers and you can come up with a range for your own asset. Right. It's a pretty reasonable, it's not perfect. You know, you can compl- you can say that like for an infrastructure investment, maybe there is no publicly traded equivalent, but in general, this is a reasonable way of going right. about things. And the point is that it's really weird if those publicly traded assets are performing one way, right. and then if those privately held assets are reported to be performing a totally different way. So if the private equity funds have invested in these companies, and they're saying, because you have to take them at their word, that these companies are doing great, but the publicly traded companies are plummeting, right. there's, that's weird. Right. And that's why the energy sector example is so useful because this is really a situation where both for the publicly traded companies and the privately held ones, you know, there's a there's a mix within the sector of the kinds of companies, but at the same time, they're all very, very clearly exposed to oil price. You should expect a relationship. If you look at the relationship between the publicly traded companies and oil price, it's very clear. You look at the ones between the privately held portfolios of companies, we don't know what's actually in them. Uh, you compare that to oil price, you get a, a much different picture. And so the question is, well, why would that be? And it's not, you know, there isn't really a great answer. You can imagine there are certain choices that may have been made, but collectively it seems weird that everyone made the same choice. Uh, you think that if they did really well, they'd be advertising that in a more coherent way. And the other thing that's weird about it too, which um, just to get to the timing point, the funds that were raised earlier, the funds that were raised in 2010, and they had the opportunity compared to funds raised in say 2012 to be buying assets at a somewhat lower price. Right. So but, because energy companies before 2012 yeah, were, were cheaper. Were so cheaper. Much, yeah, you could were buy cheaper. them for cheaper. I mean, they're even cheaper now, but they were- you know, Yeah, yeah. And yet, those funds actually are not saying they did as well necessarily as uh, the funds that were raised in 2012, which seems kind of which strange. seems very strange because you'd think that the funds that were raised in 2012 were buying at the top of the market and would have lost right. a lot right. more money- than those that right. were raised earlier and who at least would have bought when the market was cheaper. Right. That is what that is what you think. So there, that that creates sort of an interesting question of well, why would why would that be? And there's not really there's not a great answer. Yeah. To I mean, that. obviously there are variations within funds, so it's not like we can say like all funds do this or you know this particular fund is wrong or whatever because it's hard. You know, maybe some fund is you know they bought a particularly good investment or that kind. Of, I mean, sure. it's difficult to say. But in the aggregate, it's a very strange thing to see. Okay. A couple of other things. Uh, a point about data visibility here. Right, the only way to get the estimates of the value of privately held portfolios by private equity funds is to go to their investors and look at what they report, essentially. Right, That's so right. that means we don't necessarily have all of the info that we'd want. That's right. I mean, it's in this particular case, it's probably pretty good. the The data source in question is called Bison, and they look at it's a service that institutional investors they plug in data and they can use it to compare performance of funds they own and ones they don't, so they can make their own allocation decisions. And most of the money is in bigger funds, so and most of the bigger funds are held by some institutions, so it's probably pretty good. I, I mean, I agree, it's not you know the full universe. The, I mean, the bigger issue in terms of data transparency is you have to trust the private equity companies and what they say, and that's. You know, it's not like they're giving you the underlying financial performance of what they hold. They're just telling you, oh, we've made money on this or we haven't lost money on this. 
or we haven't lost that much money on it. All of which are weird things, given that the oil price is you know less than half what it was. Here's my question, though: Do private equity firms have any incentive to be wrong about how they value their holdings? Because from what I understand, if you're a private equity fund, you lock in the committed capital from your investors early on, and you just call on it when you need it. So once you've locked in the investment, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any particular reason to be over-optimistic about your valuation if you know that the money's coming your way. Well, it's interesting. So I think one potential argument you could have is the implied volatility of the performance of these funds can be masked if you don't necessarily update it according to purely what the market is telling you. So it's entirely possible, for example, that by the time these funds finally are considered finished or matured or whatever, which could very well be longer than, you know, we talked about 10 years is sort of the traditional period. I mean, in practice, it's already longer than that nowadays. Uh, a lot of the, I, I think, what is it? Something like a third of the unrealized value of private equity funds as a whole, in other words, all the stuff they own, they haven't sold off yet, is stuff that was from funds that were raised before 2008. So, I mean... <laughs> Which gives you a sense of how difficult it is to sell some of the stuff, right? So it's entirely possible by the time these particular funds are finally, you know, put out to pasture in say the 2020s, that the oil price will have recovered, and they'll say, "Oh, well, look, we actually did make money. Everybody's happy." And yeah, maybe they and were we a little. Actually, were yeah. right back then when right. we had our right. investments and valued a certain way. And therefore, them being creative and a well, then well, that's the interesting question, right? Maybe they they might not they weren't necessarily right at the time. And so and this gets back to the objective truth, right? At the time, if they had to sell those things in the open market, they would be wrong, probably, maybe, at least it's something to consider. By the time that they actually end up being done with everything many years from now, they could say, oh, well, you know, who cares because everyone made money. But the reason you should potentially care is that uh, if you hide the volatility, it makes the overall performance of, of the asset class look better than it actually is because – it's it's not necessarily that hard to to generate very high returns over a long period of time if you're willing to tolerate volatility. But the appeal of private, part of the appeal of private equity historically is they say they can generate those kinds of returns without the volatility. But if some of that comes from essentially hiding the actual volatility that's occurring through these valuation creativity, then that that's a you know disservice to investors in terms of how much they're charging for that service. Okay. Matt Klein, thanks for that. By the way, we'd love to hear from our listeners who are in the world of private equity, uh, what they think about all this. So get in touch with us. For now, though, uh, let's go on to the next segment. Joining us from her studio at the University of Oklahoma is anthropologist Tassie Hirschfeld. She spent the last couple of decades studying a new framework for understanding political economy and specifically the emergence of the criminal underworld and how it ties to the state. She's got a book out now called Gangster States, and she also has an article in Sapiens, the magazine. Tassie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Here's where I want to start. You introduce a new framework uh, for thinking about criminal behavior here, and you draw on insights from behavioral ecology and from evolutionary biology. Uh, so why don't you just start by telling us what we can learn from those fields and how we can apply it to understanding criminal behavior. <laughs> okay. Let me start this way. Uh, I think that behavioral ecology and evolutionary biology are not usually well understood because they aren't really taught. People might take one class in college, but and sort of until you're kind of steeped in it, um, it feels a little alien, and it, it doesn't really translate well or, or it, it feels dissonant with how we understand political economy. 
But when you do some reading, it starts to make sense, both in that economics is a human behavior and behavioral ecology uh, is a natural way to explain aggregate patterns of human behavior. And so there's kind of a crossover space with behavioral economics, except that behavioral economics is largely based in psychology, which is a more individualistic discipline. So by using behavioral ecology instead of psychology, then we can sort of look at longitudinal evolutionary patterns of human economic behavior. I have no idea what that last bit meant. What exactly exactly is uh, behavioral ecology and what are longitudinal patterns? Okay, so behavioral ecology is just a way to understand the way any species, sort of the way its behavior helps it live and reproduce and succeed in its specific environment. And so if we wanted to talk about the behavioral ecology of squirrels on a college campus, they're really good at exploiting things that students leave around. So they have a foraging pattern that is conducive to the resources of a college campus. And so you can actually measure how much time, you know, is it worth the squirrel's time to forage in a leftover pizza box? (laughs) Or is that squirrel just going to go hungry? And so behavioral ecology is a way to quantify sort of the cost benefit of a particular behavioral strategy. Got it. Survival like foraging. Okay. And from evolutionary biology, you make the insight that uh, we trend towards the most stable strategy of cooperation. Uh, What exactly uh, does that tell us about political economy and especially about the emergence of criminal activity? The emphasis on stability, it doesn't mean that it's permanently stable. It just means that a behavioral pattern, if it's truly stable, is not vulnerable to invasion by an alternative behavioral pattern. And so I've sort of transposed this into economics by proposing that a behavioral pattern that is composed of all cooperative behavior. So you can think of this as like a utopian society where there's no state or no government. Everybody fulfills their economic needs through cooperative exchange is unstable. Like in a classic behavioral ecology experiment, an environment like that is very vulnerable because if you introduce one dishonest, violent, greedy person, there's no behavioral defense against that. And so everybody has to adapt to that point in order to maintain the system that that they were trying to build. I guess the uh, comparison then would be with an economy that has nobody overseeing it, right? That exactly. has no protection of your individual rights, of your property rights. If it's all just based on cooperation and no oversight whatsoever, that is, you argue, an unstable economy that will trend towards something more stable, which is criminality. Exactly. And so this is why I've used the informal economy as a way to study this, because smuggling networks and it's all this invisible economic exchange that takes place outside the state. And so it is a stateless space. And so this is why, I mean, I make the argument that if you look at the informal economy, you don't see, sometimes you see cooperation and, um, you know, peaceful exchange. But more frequently, what you see are these hierarchical violent structures that we call mafias or gangs or even warlords. And so they're using violence to monopolize resources. And so it's no longer a peaceful system of exchange anymore. It's this hierarchical predatory structure. 
Yeah, I guess uh, something that's interesting about the book, too, is that it introduces this idea that once you have the establishment of these gangs or these mafias using violence to enforce their particular racket, right, the process becomes formalized, right? They start actually drawing borders and things like that. How does that work? So if you have, imagine, predators and prey animals, the predators are dependent on the prey because if they overeat the prey animals, they also starve. And so if you have two competing mafias or protection rackets trying to occupy the same space, they overprey on the economic production of people who are actually growing crops or building things. Mafias have to be organized as a monopoly over a specific geographic region because when you have more than one of them competing for control, uh, they drive the entire economic system nobody survives, right? Right. So it's like too many predators, not enough prey. And yet, I think you also uh, discuss in the book how some of these mafias, even when they have established their proper borders and everything, are still vulnerable to that point when, over time, economic activity stops anyways because it essentially has become subject to the monopolies predations, right? Exactly. And so even if you have a stable system, it's only stable for a while um, because there is a natural tendency for wealthy mafiosi or warlords to overconsume. And there's actually an archaeologist who has studied kind of the prehistory of this in areas that have seen like formation of complex societies followed by crashes and multiple cycles of this over a thousand years or so. And he sort of used a phrase like, uh, the tendency of elites to compete with one another and to overprey on their populations to sort of build these monumental palaces or or to engage in warfare. Warfare is very expensive. And so if you're sort of taxing your population to build weapons or taking so many people out of economic production to be soldiers, there is a tendency to sort of overbuild. Sure. And I guess to this point, uh, we've been talking about this kind of activity in the criminal underworld. Um, What you just talked about, though, is when an actual state is organized around this kind of rent extracting activity. You make the point in the book that actually for most of human history, that has been the natural state until the last few hundred years. That is a strange observation. And and this has to do with the unique perspective of anthropology, because our time horizon goes way back to prehistory. And so when you look that far back with a 100,000-year time horizon, what you do see, starting about 10,000 years ago, when humans first began producing agricultural surplus, then you have the formation of these complex societies, you first get standing armies, you get craft specialization, and you get marked political boundaries. So all of these things kind of happen at the same time, and they happen independently in at least seven different places. So there's this convergent evolution of complex institutions which we now call states. But in anthropology, this is a problem for us. Like, why do we have states? Why does everyone live in a state? And so uh, using this model as a way to explain why, you know, the racketeering evolves first, and then those institutions that were used for racketeering are kind of repurposed for governance. Yeah, this to to me is interesting as uh, somebody who studies economics and economic history, because the escape from the Malthusian trap a few hundred years ago is still, explaining that is still a bit of a mystery, right? The idea that for most of human history, living standards didn't really climb all that quickly. And then a couple hundred years ago, or, you know, 
a few hundred years ago, I should say, we somehow became a little bit better at cooperating in order to trade, in order to specialize. And that has been you know, sort of the source of monumental enrichment in human progress in the last few hundred years. Uh, but I guess it's easy to forget that that is still a very small period of time within the, the context of humans being recognizably human for only like, what, 50,000 years or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the innovation of democracy was great. <laughs> I'm a fan. But again, from an anthropological point of view, this is really recent. And so the majority of our time as a species was spent in these sort of small-scale hunter-gatherer societies. Even for us in anthropology, agriculture is still really new. And so the, the sort of social system of a complex agricultural society is still not entirely in keeping with what you, we might call, you know, our evolutionary environment or what is normal or natural for us as a species. So I am a fan of where we are now, um, but the question of sustainability comes up, right? Like... Democracy is very stabilizing, but democracies can still become destabilized, including by organized crime, which is what we see going on in, in a lot of parts of the world right now. Can you actually flesh that out a bit? Like, can you give us a few examples of um, places where, for instance, a democratic approach that appeared to be stable was destabilized by this kind of activity? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> where to start? I think the thing that is most in people's minds right now among the small group of people who study these sorts of things, would be the situation in what's called the Northern Triangle, which involves parts of Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador, where cartels have gotten very powerful over the past decade. And there's been an enormous outflow of refugees and homicide rates are really high. And I think the recent assassination of a new mayor in Mexico really got people's attention about how the underworld can kind of emerge and take over the institutions of the upper world, like a democratically elected mayor. Um, and I think that this is, there isn't quite a vocabulary in place to talk about what's happening and what it means. Um, we just are in more crisis response mode of like, oh my gosh, there's people abandoning entire towns and there are drug gangs colonizing entire cities and nobody quite knows what's happening or what to do about it. In those cases, would you say that uh, the problems evolved because of the drug racket that then became a kind of formalized system where these gangs started carving out their own territories and now they've become so powerful that they're actually threatening the ability of the state to protect individual rights, the, the rights of individuals who are outside of those formalized racket power structures. Right. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of contests between drug gangs who really feel like they can operate openly now in a lot of places in the vestigial institutions of the state. And so because there's such an asymmetry in resources, a lot of the drug gangs, it's easier to co-opt local police um, and you can do this by violence or intimidation or bribery. And so uh, the more powerful the gangs grow, the weaker the institutions of the state become. And then the more likely the gangs are to operate openly and sort of start openly seizing territory, which they've done in some of these areas. Yeah. During one of my uh, recent chats um, on our long form podcast, Brad Long was talking about uh, the distinctions between you know having too much government or having too little government. And he was making the case that even most libertarian economists 
uh, would say that you need a government there to protect some rights, to protect some basic rights. And he, he, made, he made the quote or he offered the quote that the state that governs least is Somalia. Right. And, <laughs> right. and I, the, the unstate. Right. The unstate. <laughs> I mean, can you just sort of talk about what specific parts um, of a democratic government are the ones that protect against the formalization and growth of these rackets and these kind of criminal power structures? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, if you look back at the United States during Prohibition, what you see is a policy passed by the formally democratically elected state of outlawing a very popular commodity, which is alcohol, with no with the intention that this would be a social good. But what happened was you just changed the market from the formal to the informal economy. So instead of going to a store to buy alcohol in a transaction that was regulated with protections of both parties, you created this huge growth industry in the mafia and you made places like Cuba transnational smuggling, which destabilized their government. Some people have argued that today's drug war is kind of doing the same thing, that it's well-intentioned. Nobody wants more drug problems in this country. But at the same time, by making all these transactions in the informal economy, it just fuels the growth of these predatory mafias abroad, which then create instability and refugees for us. Now, I'm not a complete libertarian about drug laws. Obviously, some these, these substances are dangerous. People die from them. So every society kind of has to make a choice about you know, or, or at least understand what the consequences are of a certain approach to prohibiting access to things that people want. Or if there's a strong market demand for prohibited commodities, to just know that at a certain point, prohibition becomes counterproductive or that it creates new problems that you quite aren't prepared to deal with. Okay. Tassie Hirschfeld, the book is Gangster States, Organized Crime, Kleptocracy, and Political Collapse. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. But before before we let you go, though, Tassie, uh, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Oh, there have been some fantastic books about crime that have come out lately. Uh, Young Grio, who has written a book called Gangster Warlords about the Northern Triangle in Mexico, uh, and also Misha Glenny, who is one of the most talented crime writers, uh, crime reporters, and his book McMafia was very influential, and he has a new one out on Brazil. So, so those would be my two big ones. And that is the end of the interview portion of today's episode. But Matt is back here in the studio with me to do long-form recommendations. Matt, you're this week's guest host. What do you got? So this weekend I saw a a wonderful film that I think explores a great deal of the tensions that exist in in modern society, particularly at least American society, uh, Zootopia, which... Uh, it's all really about the you know how you live in a in a diverse community and dealing with prejudice and the difference between biology and and how people are are raised and uh, also just a very entertaining and and good film. Is this the animated film? That's right. Okay, well, what is it about again? You imagine a world in which animals are able to interact with each other in society across species as if they were all people more or less speaking in English. And you follow the career of a rabbit who aspires to be a police officer, Officer Hops. And she is tasked with finding a missing otter and in the process discovers a conspiracy and a whole lot of other things happen. But I mean, at its core, it's really about dealing with with prejudice and, and diversity and recognizing differences and understanding that 
you know, people can talk about, you know, biology defining your character, not necessarily, or maybe it is, but it's an interest. you know, it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a worthwhile film. And also just as that, just entertaining. Okay. That sounds like fun. It sounds like you've also uh, intellectualized Utopia more than I think most people have, um, which is why we have you here. All right. I've got one of my own too. It's from the new-ish magazine Quanta. All right. Uh, the title is New Evidence for the Necessity of Loneliness. It is about the search for uh, the neurological basis of loneliness, right? So about identifying the part of the brain that's responsible for it. And in that sense, it's a, it's a fairly conventional profile, but it also adds in some really intriguing insights about the evolutionary basis for loneliness, right? So the idea here uh, is that having a very high sensitivity for lo- to loneliness, right? In other words, it makes you feel really bad when you're alone, mm-hmm. um, leads you to uh, seek out your group. And so Loneliness in that sense or our sensitivity to it is necessary for cooperative behavior, for social behavior, that kind of thing. But it also makes the case that there are good reasons for there to be varying sensitivities to loneliness in a population, right? So, for instance, in the olden days, right, back when we were all in tribes or whatever, uh, you would have wanted somebody who has a very high sensitivity to loneliness, who really disliked loneliness, because that's the kind of person who would defend the village from attack, right? Somebody who felt really responsible for other people, somebody who likes socializing with other people, uh, and who might also have a higher propensity for becoming like the village leader, okay? But you also want people with a lower sensitivity to loneliness because those are the explorers, right? Those are the people who go out on their own and they look for new things uh, and they maybe help to expand the territory whatever, right? These are the guys who are out there looking for something new. But you don't want even those people to have zero sensitivity to loneliness. You don't want them to right. be totally tolerant of loneliness. They'll never because come back. They'll never come back. You want them to come back and to you know bond with the group and to bring their insights back to the group and to have the group benefit. And then you have people uh, all along the spectrum. So anyways, just a really insightful uh, idea uh, and just a, from a magazine that I don't think a lot of people have heard of but that I would recommend. It's called Quanta Magazine illuminating science check it out and that concludes today's show as always you can give us a call at 917-551-5012 that's a u.s number so for our overseas listeners you can add a plus one on there that's the u.s country code again 917-551-5012 you can send us an email at alpha chat at ft.com or tweet us matt klein is at m underscore c underscore klein I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Matt, no thanks for complicating that for us, buddy. It's a really common name. <laughs> just just try Googling it and see how many people come up who aren't me. It's- Fair enough. You can leave a review and rate the show on iTunes. Please do. It helps other people find us. The show notes, as always, are at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. The superstar rating that Amy Keene gets, unlike in finance, is not at all illusory. It is 100% real. Thanks for everything, Amy, for producing and editing the show. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.